Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Russian President Putin makes a pivotal announcement. NATO leaders are calling it an attack without weapons. And President Biden has agreed to meet Putin later this week, so long as tanks aren't rolling in. Canadian lawmakers are voting on the Emergencies Act. Police removed protesters and trucks from the streets of Ottawa over the weekend. Meanwhile, another trucker convoy is ready to set off from California to Washington, D.C. It's President's Day, and former President Trump's social media app, Truth Social, has made its debut. He is hoping it will rival Twitter, but the rollout wasn't quite as smooth as expected. Microsoft founder and billionaire Bill Gates says that Omicron is like a vaccine and that many people who were infected with the variant are now protected from severe illness as a result. The Chinese Communist regime is harvesting DNA from people all over the globe, including Americans, and they've been doing it for quite some time. Now they want to purchase clinics near multiple U.S. military bases, but the U.S. is fighting back. Here's the latest on Russia. President Biden has agreed in principle to meet with Putin later this week if tanks aren't rolling in. This as Putin prepares to recognize two separatist states in Ukraine, a move some NATO leaders say is one step closer to declaring war. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the latest. Russian leader Putin made a pivotal announcement on Monday, officially recognizing the independence of two rebel-controlled regions of Ukraine. I consider it necessary to make a long overdue decision to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic. This drew immediate backlash from Western forces who say it's a violation of international law. The White House is now imposing sanctions to block U.S. investment in the two regions Putin named. But the sanctions do not hit Russia directly. The White House clarifies more is to come. Press Secretary Jen Psaki writes, to be clear, these measures are separate from and would be in addition to the swift and severe economic measures we have been preparing in coordination with allies and partners should Russia further invade Ukraine. Shortly afterward, Putin sent Russian troops into those two breakaway regions. The Kremlin says Putin ordered the Russian forces to maintain peace in eastern Ukraine. It is a repudiation of the, uh, the Minsk process and the Minsk agreements. And uh, I think it's a very ill omen and a very dark sign. And the Pentagon warns again that a Russian invasion appears imminent. Uh, a Russian attack could come any day now. Well, today might be that day, and we hope that's not the case. Some airlines are canceling their flights to Ukraine, and some Ukrainians are evacuating neighborhoods. There's an evacuation happening. I have two kids, and I'm responsible for them. That's why the decision was taken quickly. But at the same time, the White House pledged to leave a path open for diplomacy as long as possible. Secretary of State Antony Blinken plans to meet with Russia's foreign minister this Thursday. And while President Biden is prepared to meet with Putin later this week as a last-ditch effort for de-escalation, Russia says it's too early to even have this discussion about a potential meeting with Biden. Meanwhile, Ukraine's president says no progress can be made without consulting with him first. Biden did speak with Zelensky for about a half hour today. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. 
The Canadian Parliament will vote on the government's Emergency Act later tonight. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expects it to pass, and he says the emergency will need to continue, even though police have cleared out the protests. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Monday again defended invoking the Emergencies Act to deal with trucker protests. Downtown Ottawa remains quiet after police arrested around 200 people and towed away dozens of vehicles over the weekend. But even though uh, the blockades are lifted uh, across border uh, openings right now, uh, even though uh, things seem to be resolving very well in Ottawa, this state of emergency is not over. Uh, there continues to be real concerns uh, about the coming days, uh, but we will continue to evaluate every single day uh, whether or not uh, it is uh, time and we are able to lift this state of emergency. Organizers of the Freedom Convoy said in a press conference on Saturday that government leaders should be ashamed of themselves for how they handled the protests. So it's a dark day in our history. Never in my life would I believe anyone if they told me that our Prime Minister would refuse dialogue and choose violence against peaceful protesters. We're all in shock and we are currently organizing legal counsel and support for those injured by police brutality. The organizers say they are initiating a charter challenge and asking the court to strike down the vaccine mandates. They called on protesters and truckers to peacefully leave Ottawa on Saturday, but ultimately it was up to each trucker whether to leave. We have many truckers who feel that uh, the best course of action for them and their families is to peacefully withdraw and regroup and plan our next move because we're not going to just stand there and be a punching bag for law enforcement. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says he will sue the Trudeau government in federal court to suspend the Emergencies Act. He tells Post Media that invoking the act is an overreach, unjustified in the circumstances, and an intrusion into provincial jurisdiction. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Republican Congresswoman Yvette Harrell is introducing a bill that would grant temporary asylum to Canadian protesters. She says the Canadian government is persecuting them and, quote, we cannot be silent as our neighbors to the north are treated so badly. Truckers across the country will be leading the way in a convoy to protest pandemic restrictions, which they are calling excessive and unconstitutional. The national organizer of the convoy speaks with Steve Lance, who is host of NTD's Capital Report. The People's Convoy will leave Barstow, California on Wednesday, February 3rd. Organizers say they plan to arrive in Washington, D.C. by early March, around the time of President Biden's State of the Union address. The national organizer, Maureen Steele, tells NTD that this is America's answer to the Freedom Convoy protests in Canada. Um, the truckers' uh, declaration was written a couple weeks ago, and that's gone around um, on the Internet. Um, with the demands of what the truckers want and, and what the American people want. Um, we want the, the emergency, uh, the state of emergency lifted. We want our constitution to reign supreme and we want accountability. The Canadian government has been cracking down on the protests over the past few days. Steele says her convoy tried to learn from what happened in Canada and they have been engaging with local municipalities and police along their route. We also have lawyers um, on board that are helping us to um, 
make sure that we're within within the law as we're rolling through, um, you know, entering small towns or as we go through small towns to make sure that we're welcome there. We're trying to stay uh, rolling and moving, um, marshalling on private property instead of um, public property or city-owned property. I think that is one of the issues that they had up in Canada. Steele says they are taking precautions but don't know what the government will do. And she welcomes everyone to join the convoy along its route. And people are welcome to join the convoy at our marshalling points and even just ride for a day. So if you can only ride for a day or ride for a couple hundred miles, join the convoy. Come and show support um, and celebrate freedom with your fellow American. U.S. Capitol Police say they are aware of the convoy and they will be monitoring and preparing for extra security with other law enforcement agencies. The police force is considering reinforcing fences around the Capitol building but hasn't made a decision on it yet. Allison Lee, NTD News. To catch the full interview with Maureen Steele, you can watch it at 7.30 p.m. tonight on the Capitol Report with Steve Lance. And we'll bring you more information about the convoy from the ground. And former President Trump's long-anticipated social media platform, Truth Social, is now available at the Apple App Store. NTD's Chenny Wu spoke with a social media expert on what sets this social media app apart from the others. Former President Donald Trump's Twitter alternative social media app launched Monday, about a year after he was banned from Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Andrew Selipak, a social media professor at the University of Florida, says Truth Social could be a platform that offers new perspectives and ideas. A lot of the social media platforms have been limiting certain voices, certain topics. We know this has been true when it's come to COVID. We've seen how this has played out recently with Joe Rogan in different ways. We've also seen how it's played out with the Canadian trucker protest. And Truth Social, much like Parler, much like Rumble and some of the other platforms before it, has supposed to be the platform where there's going to be allowing more free speech. But he adds that there will still be some limits. You still can't incite violence. You still can't have um, certain content that is offensive as it breaks some of the laws when it comes to indecency. Selapak says social media platforms do have the right to decide what can and cannot be said on their platforms. So we have to understand that the platforms can basically limit and prevent anything that they want from being said and, and cut down any voices and ban anybody and, and you know, basically take down any content that they find disagreeable based on their terms of service. Truth Social's community guidelines says that the company will not remove or filter content based on political ideology or point of view. What we're going to have to wait and see is to what extent they're going to moderate the voices and the content that's on there. And at this point, it's still kind of up in the air. It would be good. It would be nice. It would be helpful. I think a lot of people would say to have a competing platform out there. But adds that functionality will be the ultimate determination of whether Truth Social is a success. Selapak pointed out that the two biggest differences between Truth Social and mainstream social media companies are... One, Donald Trump is going to be on it. Uh, you're talking about probably the most famous person in the world who is banned from other social media platforms. And the second biggest difference is that the other social media platforms actually work. 
Um, right now, Truth Social has been out for hours and no one really seems to be able to log on, create an account, confirm their account, or use the platform to know exactly how it's going to work, what it's going to look like, and what it's going to do, or how many people are even on it. The app, Truth Social, was available in the Apple App Store, but encountered technical glitches shortly after launch, with subscribers having trouble signing on. Uh, if they're having this much trouble just getting people to sign in, just getting people to create an account, you know, that's sort of the easy part compared to actually running the account, to actually making it user friendly, allowing enough people to post and share content. Uh, so a lot remains to be seen in terms of how True Social is going to end up and, and how well it's going to perform. According to Apple's rankings, Truth Social was the top free app in the U.S. on Monday morning. But the app may not be fully operational until next month. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The CDC has recently updated its vaccine schedule for people with weak immune systems. They now recommend four doses in less than six months. NTD's Miguel Moreno has the story. To some, getting just two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine was painful, but necessary. Now imagine getting four shots in less than six months. That's the latest schedule recommended to people who are moderately or severely immunocompromised. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, says people being treated for cancer and other conditions that weaken immune systems may follow the updated schedule. That group could already get a third dose weeks after the second dose, but they had to wait five months for a fourth dose. Now under the new policy, just three months. No explanation for the update was given and we haven't heard back from the CDC. Yeah, so the immunocompromised population do not mount a very good immune response. Pulmonary critical care specialist Dr. Roger Schultz says he treats immunocompromised patients infected with COVID-19. Is there data strongly suggesting that recommending four doses of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine in less than six months would significantly help the immunocompromised population. There is some data. Uh, it's not as strong as we would like, of course, but um, in those that are immunocompromised, and we're talking about people with cancers, people with specifically diseases that affect the immune system, those are the ones that I am seeing in my intensive care unit that are coming in. So when I, when I talk about people who are coming into the intensive care unit requiring ventilation, um, the people that I'm seeing that are coming in, it's, it's few, but it's always these people that are immunocompromised in some reason that have gotten both shots and maybe even a booster. They're the ones that are coming in sick. And so uh, not only from the data that we have on record, but just me personally, I'm seeing these are the type of patients that are coming in. Italy is one of the latest countries to recommend a fourth dose to that population, but its interval time is a month longer than the CDC's recommendation. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. If you want to get a COVID vaccine here in the U.S., you should be able to find one pretty quickly. But in third world countries, that's not the case, at least not for physical vaccines. Bill Gates is now saying that the Omicron variant is a type of vaccine and that it has reached developing nations very efficiently. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on the billionaire's opinion. German radio station BR24 published a video of the Microsoft founder making his statement at a security conference in Munich this past weekend. The virus itself, particularly the, the variant called Omicron, 
uh, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. According to Gates, people around the globe haven't rolled out vaccines fast enough, but Omicron spread around the globe quickly, infecting many people. Gates says in some parts of Africa, well over 80% of people surveyed have either been vaccinated or contracted the virus. And what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. He added that it took us two years to reach an oversupply of vaccines, which he thinks is too long. Gates says we will have another pandemic and that he hopes when the time comes, it'll take us only half a year to create a vaccine as opposed to two years. And he also says that we might have a universal flu vaccine within the next 10 years. That vaccine would target all respiratory diseases. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff's sister and her husband were found dead in their home. It appeared to be a murder-suicide according to law enforcement. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office says they found the two of them dead in their home in Boynton Beach, Florida on Thursday. Madoff's sister Sandra Weiner was 87 years old and her husband Marvin Weiner was 90. Both of them died of gunshot wounds. Madoff was a financier responsible for the largest financial fraud in history. It involved $20 billion. He died in federal prison at age 82 last year while serving a 150-year sentence. The sister's family is invoking a state law that allows victims to keep personal information private in order to prevent harassment. And one worker was injured when a huge refinery in Louisiana exploded and caught on fire this morning. It was the Marathon Petroleum Corporation plant in Garyville between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. The facility can refine nearly 600,000 barrels per day. It's one of the largest in the country. It's not immediately clear what caused the blast. Officials later gave the all-clear sign and the injured worker was taken to a hospital. Louisiana State Police say authorities are investigating the cause. And China, for quite some time, has been harvesting DNA from people all around the world, including Americans. Much of this done through buying up companies that store genetic data providing testing products that collect DNA, setting up research labs, and more. Critics are concerned that the data could be used to further the Chinese regime's plans to boost its military power. Here are the details. China is collecting genetic data on a massive scale. It's under the guise of biotech services and genomic studies, and it's happening more and more on U.S. soil. Some warn that the data can serve the Chinese Communist regime's aggressive military schemes. Now, the U.S. appears to be making moves to counter it. The most recent dealt a blow to China's largest biologics outsourcing company, Wuxi Biologics. The company makes vaccine ingredients. Earlier this month, two subsidiaries of the company were added to the American government's unverified list. The Commerce Department says that's because they couldn't verify that Wuxi Bio is using their U.S. exports in a legitimate and reliable way. That means American firms are now required to go through more procedures before shipping goods to these companies. What is Wuxi Biologics and how does it concern the U.S.? The company was founded in 2015 in China, 
It's been expanding in North America and Europe over the past few years, with three U.S. locations, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. It's also planning to build a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant in Delaware, a project that'll get partially funded by American taxpayer dollars through government grants. Last year, Wuxi Bio bought a Pfizer manufacturing plant in China, which gave it access to some of Pfizer's data. And when it was first founded in 2015, Bio bought a stake in American DNA testing company 23andMe. But how are companies like Bio expanding so fast? The short answer is Beijing, specifically its state-owned investment fund. In it, over $1 trillion. Since 2017, much of this money has been flooding into American biotech companies as part of the Chinese Communist Party's strategic plan called Made in China 2025. The plan identifies biotech as a strategic industry that qualifies for substantial government funding. Consequently, Beijing has allocated $100 billion for investment in the sector. In 2019, half of China's investment in the U.S. went to health, pharmaceuticals, and biotech sectors. And last year, Chinese drug makers filing for FDA approval hit a record high. These expansion efforts are likely tied to China's military through a state policy called the Military-Civilian Fusion Program, launched in 2016. The program looks to boost China's military through adapting civilian technology for the defense sector. In 2017, China launched the world's largest human genome research project. Now, that program may go beyond the Chinese border and threaten U.S. national security. In an interview with the Epic Times, China economics professor Dr. Antonio Graceffo mentioned one specific case, one where Beijing could collect DNA from American soldiers. There was one, one case in particular where specifically it was a um, fertility clinic, which was located within reasonable driving distance of six American military bases. So the idea was probably the CCP wants to own this fertility clinic and then all the soldiers and, you know, they're married and whatever, they're coming there for fertility or for um, paternity testing and things like that. The CCP's goal shows no sign of slowing. Its DNA collecting efforts now have expanded across the globe. And at the center, China's Beijing Genomics Institute, or BGI. The company is closely linked to the Chinese military. And in 2013, it purchased Complete Genomics, a California-based company that holds genetic information on U.S. citizens. Last year, a report exposed that BGI had harvested genetic data from over 8 million pregnant women in at least 52 countries. According to Reuters, China has long considered genetic data collection as a national security issue. Since 2015, Beijing has restricted foreign researchers from accessing gene data on Chinese people. In contrast, the U.S. and Britain give foreign researchers access to genetic data as part of open science policies. It's President's Day, which many consider a good occasion to learn about American history with their kids. NTD visited two museums in Philadelphia and spoke to some of the people. We visited Philadelphia's National Constitution Center and the Museum of the American Revolution. One visitor says it seems as if the founding fathers were looking into the future when they wrote the Constitution. The Constitution, after 200 and uh, so many years, it's uh, still a document that protects our freedom and our rights. But although we have a Constitution, another visitor says the American Revolution showed that freedom is not free. 
Revolutionary War was uh, a short um, uh, period, but the revolution continues and people keep, have to keep fighting for freedom and liberty. The Founding Fathers, George Washington and many others fought for America to be the greatest nation in the world. Everything we have today is due to what he and the Founding Fathers and, and other you know, fighters for the revolutionary did. Freedom is the word that most people first think of when asked about the first president's legacy. The freedom that uh, everyone should be free to do uh, you know, what we want and have all the uh, liberty and all the rights um, that we work so hard to achieve. The day was especially good for a young lady who dressed up as a former first lady. And I dressed up like a first lady and I just won the contest so now I can be here for a whole year. If you want to visit these places, Museum of the American Revolution is open every day. The National Constitution is currently open Wednesdays through Sundays. The Winter Olympics have concluded and Norway leaves with the most golds and medals won overall. But there were plenty of other storylines at the Games. NTD's Dave Martin has the highlights. Despite TV viewership on NBC Peacock being down roughly 40% from four years ago, these Olympics provided plenty of lasting memories, starting with Sean White's retirement. Although no one wanted to see the half-pipe legend leave the sport he made so popular, his last run was a must-see event. The oldest competitor in his field, the 35-year-old White, was in position for silver after a great second run. But by his third and final time through, he needed a higher score to get back in the medals. But that wasn't in the cards. Instead, White crashed out on his second trick. But the unfortunate fall created an opportunity for the audience and competitors alike to give him a final farewell as a tearful White waved goodbye. Chloe Kim nearly came to tears after a near-perfect run in the women's half-pipe brought her to her knees and won her gold for the second straight Olympics as a popular snowboarder awed herself and the judges in a spectacular run. In the 2006 Olympics, Lindsay Jacobellis was a 20-year-old snowboard cross star whose disastrous decision to do a last-second victory board grab sent her crashing out of first place. But after a 16-year wait, the three-time world champion finally got that gold medal with a win in the women's big final. The biggest headlines, though, were the unfortunate doping scandal surrounding 15-year-old figure skating sensation Camila Valiva. As shocking as that was, it wasn't as surprising as Valiva's performance in the women's free skate, where a couple of falls sent her out of a medal. Meanwhile, her performance in the team event has held up the medal ceremony and brought up the possibility of imposing an Olympic age limit that wouldn't offer any skater extra rights as a protected person in a doping case. Conversely, Nathan Chen's performance on the ice erased his previous Olympic memories of 2018 when a couple of shaky performances kept him from individual medals. This time around, the three-time reigning world champion scored an Olympic record in the short program on his way to gold. One of eight for Team USA, which tied them for fifth. In the overall leaderboard, Team USA's 25 medals were also fifth, trailing Norway, Russia, Germany and Canada. The next Olympics are just 29 months away as Paris hosts the Summer Games in 2024. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a real estate heiress was acquitted of her ex-boyfriend's murder and the lawsuit was scheduled to reach a settlement. But it was delayed when a California judge said the lawyer who made the deal was not even representing her. And two drinking fountains side by side vandalized with racial graffiti. The California school district investigates and discovers the perpetrator. That and more here on NTD News.
California judge delayed an agreement that would settle a wrongful death lawsuit against a Chinese real estate heiress. She was acquitted of murder charges in her ex-boyfriend's death. The judge says the lawyer who made the deal was not representing her. San Mateo County Superior Court Judge Danny Cho was set to approve a settlement between real estate heiress Tiffany Lee and the family of her slain ex-boyfriend on Thursday. The settlement was pushed back when Lee's attorney said the lawyer who conducted the settlement negotiations, Alexander Berlin, was not representing Lee. The lawyer also opposed the fees being awarded to the attorneys representing Lee's children, citing the amount was redacted from the settlement. Attorneys for both sides announced last month that they had reached a settlement two weeks before the trial in the wrongful death lawsuit was to start. The settlement includes $100,000 for Green's mother, $50,000 for Green's estate, and an undisclosed amount for the two daughters, who are ages 7 and 9. The settlement payout is a stark contrast to the bail that Lee's family posted. Tiffany Lee was found not guilty in 2019 for killing Keith Green, her ex-boyfriend and father of her two daughters. Lee's family posted one of the highest bail amounts on record in the nation, $35 million. Lee's family raised $62 million for her bail through pledging property. According to the Financial Times, records show that Lee's mother made her initial fortune through joint ventures with Chinese military-owned construction companies. Prosecutors allege Lee lured Green to her house where her then-boyfriend, Kava Bayat, shot and killed him. Bayat is facing murder charges. A friend that helped dispose of Green's body reached a plea argument. Judge Cho continued the hearing until April 21st to allow the attorneys to clarify who is representing Lee. Recently, two drinking fountains at a California high school were vandalized, imitating segregation from the Jim Crow era. After calls were made to investigate the systemic racism, the school district revealed that an African-American girl wrote the graffiti. This photo posted by the Daily Mail shows the words colored and white over two different water fountains at C.K. McClatchy High School in Sacramento, California. The division harkens back to Jim Crow segregation when many utilities were divided in such a way. Sacramento City Unified School District confirmed the perpetrator was a black female student. They have not released her name. The district investigated the situation on February 11th calling the disturbing graffiti racist. Mark Harris, a liaison for the school district, said he doesn't believe the words on the fountain were racist, partly since the admitted perpetrator is a young African-American woman. Community activist Barry Asayas disagreed, saying people understand what it means to have segregated labels on faucets, whether it's 1950 or 2022. The district superintendent said, Sac City Unified takes any instance of racial intolerance extremely serious because such acts harm our students and our entire community. The school district said it is taking appropriate disciplinary action. The mayor of San Francisco made more comments on the recent recall of three of the city's school board members. She said parents need to be listened to. NTD's Jason Blair has more. Over the weekend, San Francisco Mayor London Breed spoke more on her take regarding the three school board members that were recently recalled in the city and what's going to be influencing her decision on their replacements. Breed told NBC's Meet the Press. It was really about the frustration of the Board of Education doing their fundamental job. In a decisive sweeping vote, three school board members were removed from office last week. 
Reed said that she's been speaking with parents in the city to help inform her decision about who the replacement school board members will be. She told NBC the stories that I heard about children who went from being these bubbly, exciting kids to not even smiling, to being depressed. Breed says a lot of parents want members who will make sure the priorities are being taken care of and the focus is on the kids instead of the politics. Recalled board member Gabriela Lopez tweeted in response to the recall, don't be mistaken, white supremacists are enjoying this and the support of the recall is aligned with this. Breed responded by saying the fact we're still even listening to any of the recalled school board members is definitely a problem. She said we should be focusing on the parents and the challenges the kids have faced. The recall votes will be officially certified by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors within the next three weeks. And the mayor's replacement decision is also expected to happen within the coming weeks. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. Coming up, a video of a mentally ill mother of eight chained in a hut sparks outrage in China. The scandal threatens to overshadow the Beijing Winter Olympics. And after nearly two years, Australia opens its borders to vaccinated international travelers. It marks the end of some of the harshest pandemic measures of any democratic nation. That and more in just a moment here on NTD News. Besides the Olympics, Chinese internet users have been captivated by another scandal. This after video footage surfaced showing a Chinese woman chained to a wall by the neck. The mother of eight was found in a small shed, sparking outrage and concern over possible human trafficking. Now city authorities may be trying to cover up the incident. Let's take a look. The video generated nearly 2 billion views on Douyin the Chinese version of TikTok. In it, a woman was found in an inhumane state, a reportedly mentally ill mother of eight children chained by the neck in a doorless rural shack outside her home in China's eastern Jiangsu province. She was found wearing thin clothing despite winter temperatures. Her case roiled China's public, with internet users questioning how did the woman end up in chains in a rural village? Others direct suspicion at authorities after apparent efforts to cover up the matter. That's as after the video was exposed. Netizens found the woman closely resembled a photo of a missing girl from Sichuan province. Her name was Li Ying. Li was a sixth grader when she went missing in 1996 at the age of 12. Many netizens also recognized that the chained woman spoke in a local Sichuan dialect. In other footage, after the chained woman was unshackled, she pointed at the home where she was found, owned by her husband Dong, calling it a nest of jerks and adding the entire family are rapists. Local officials quickly released a statement related to her case, claiming there was no abduction and trafficking. They said the woman, surnamed Yang, had been tied up because of her violent fits. She married Dong in 1998. They had eight children. But thousands of internet users rejected this explanation. Instead, they questioned how the woman had managed to birth eight children under the country's strict birthing policies, which restricted Chinese families to just one child up until 2016. Others noticed the woman's loss of teeth and the seemingly injured tip of her tongue. They asked whether she had been abused or trafficked. 
The discussions became so heated that social media platforms in China began to censor them. The account belonging to the original blogger who first shared the video has been deleted from Douyin. While accounts reposting it have been barred from publishing new content, but the incident took an unexpected twist after local officials issued another statement refuting their own prior explanations. They admitted that Yang isn't her name and said the woman's real name is Xiaohua Mei, translated as Little Plum Blossom. The name immediately raised new suspicions, as it doesn't sound like a standard Chinese name. Officials went on to say the woman reportedly went missing from another village in southwestern Yunnan province, near the border with Burma or Myanmar. Somehow she ended up in chains and freezing thousands of miles away from home. As for how she went missing in the first place, according to the official statement, she was brought to Jiangsu province for medical treatment in 1996 by a local villager at her mother's request. Once in Jiangsu, 12-year-old Xiao went missing. Both of her parents are now deceased. Periodontal disease has been blamed for her tooth loss. Internet users again took issue with the explanation. One apparent skeptic wrote online, why would a mother entrust her daughter to a stranger and ask that she bring the child for medical care so far from home? As for now, the chained woman who authorities claim is Xiaohua Mei remains hospitalized for mental health treatment. She's unable to take media interviews. Her silence has left questions swirling around her identity. Demanding answers, netizens in China have dug into the story themselves, among them the country's top investigative journalists. They managed to visit Xiaohua's hometown and met with a woman who has identified as Xiao's half-sister, her closest living relative. But she said she had yet to see the results of the DNA test authorities had conducted before they released their report. The woman stated that nothing about the chained woman reminded her of her long-lost sister. Officials in Jiangsu province are launching an investigation into the matter, claiming they will find the truth. But Chinese netizens don't seem convinced. The previous official statements, which Chinese netizens claim are flawed, appear to suggest that the story is far from over. A third strong storm in a week batters Britain. Though Storm Franklin is not as strong or deadly as Eunice, it's brought about over 150 flood warnings. Some rivers burst their banks and some homes have had to be evacuated. New storms also make the work to restore power even harder, and there are still over 30,000 homes without power. And TD's Joy, Joy Duguid has more. Storm Franklin has sparked evacuations and caused widespread morning travel disruption, with some train operators warning not to travel amid gale force winds and flooding. This video, filmed early on Monday, shows the storm battering Ardrossan Harbour in Scotland. Franklin is the third named storm in a week. There have never been three in a week since the storm naming system was introduced seven years ago. The Met Office issued a yellow wind warning for England, Wales and southwestern Scotland and an amber warning for Northern Ireland. The highest gust of 79 miles per hour on Monday morning was recorded in Wales, not as intense as Eunice, which brought England's highest ever wind at 122 miles per hour. More than 150 flood warnings were issued for the north of England, mainly in Yorkshire and Manchester. More than 70 homes in South Manchester have reportedly been evacuated over flooding fears. The Environment Agency Northwest posted a video on Sunday night showing the floodgates on the Mersey being opened to protect thousands of homes. 
North Yorkshire Fire Service worked to rescue people and a dog from a caravan site in Knaresborough. National Rail told people not to travel as it said the first services on most routes were cancelled, with further disruption expected. Train operator Northern posted a photograph on social media showing the rail line through Rotherham station flooded so that the tracks were not visible. Major flooding across part of Yorkshire blocked multiple lines and the station will be closed until Tuesday. Stretches of the M60 in Greater Manchester and the M6 in Lancashire were closed due to incidents during the storm, including a lorry that hit a bridge and caught fire. Police said the driver luckily escaped from the cab with help from motorists and is being assessed at hospital. In the capital, where wind gusts are up to around 40 miles per hour, London overground services were cancelled or reduced. Thousands of homes throughout the UK are still without power due to Storm Eunice, and Storm Franklin is complicating recovery efforts. Energy Minister Greg Hand said 32,000 households across the UK have yet to have their power restored, mostly in southeast of England and East Anglia. Joy Dugid, NTD News. All remaining legal COVID restrictions in England will be scrapped later this week, including the requirement to self-isolate in what Boris Johnson calls a living with COVID plan. Speaking to MPs in the Commons, Boris Johnson says it's time to live with the virus as we do with the flu. The COVID-19 laws were due to end on the 24th of March, but the Prime Minister says encouraging data means he could bring that date forward. NTD's Jane Wirrell has this report. Self-isolation rules will be scrapped from Thursday as England learns to live with the virus. The date to end the restrictions, originally the 24th of March, has been brought forward. The Prime Minister announcing the plans to MPs. We now have sufficient levels of immunity to complete the transition from protecting people with government interventions to relying on vaccines and treatments as our first line of defence. We don't need laws to compel people to be considerate to others. We can rely on that sense of responsibility towards one another, providing practical advice in the knowledge that people will follow it to avoid infecting loved ones and others. So let us learn to live with this virus and continue protecting ourselves and others without restricting our freedoms. The changes announced include removing all remaining restrictions that are in law, an end to self-isolation rules from Thursday and an end to free COVID tests from April. An additional booster jab will be made available for the most vulnerable in the spring. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Today, Australia fully reopened its international borders to travellers vaccinated against the virus. That's after nearly two years of pandemic-related closings. Now, tourists are returning and hundreds of people are reunited with their family and friends. Libby Hogan reports. There were hugs and gifts of Vegemite at Australia's biggest airport on Monday as it buzzed with reunited family and friends. The country has welcomed back tourists now that the international borders are fully reopened. At Sydney Airport, American traveller Lauren Potter was one of the travellers overjoyed with the restrictions lifting. 
Yeah, as soon as I opened up the borders, I just knew I could finally come and see my family and, and attend my brother's wedding, like on March 4th. So that's what I'm really excited about, to have the whole family together again. After more than two years of closures, you can now visit Australia if you're fully vaccinated. More than 50 international flights were set to land in the country on Monday, including 27 touching down at Sydney, the largest city. Australian Trade and Tourism Minister Dan Tehan said the tourism industry is hopeful for a rebound in bookings after the 43 billion US dollar industry was hamstrung by closed borders. The hugs, the tears has just been wonderful. It's been a party out here at Sydney Airport. Everyone's celebrating. It's so great to have the international tourists back from right around the world. Australia shifted away from its fortress-style controls and relentless lockdowns at the end of last year and began living with the virus after reaching higher levels of vaccination. Australia's outbreak of the Omicron coronavirus variant appears to have passed its peak, with hospital admissions steadily falling over the past three weeks. And Israel will begin allowing entry to all tourists from March 1st, regardless of whether they have been vaccinated against COVID-19. That's according to a statement from the Prime Minister's office released Sunday. Entry into Israel will still require two PCR tests, one before flying in and one upon landing in Israel. Currently, only vaccinated foreigners are allowed into Israel. And a French modeling agent was found dead in his prison cell on Saturday. Jean-Luc Brunel founded a renowned modeling agency in the 70s. Then he started a model management company with the convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The 76-year-old was detained in December 2020 as part of an inquiry into whether Epstein committed sex crimes on French soil or against French victims. That includes allegations of rape, sexual assault and sexual harassment. Brunel had denied any wrongdoing related to his association with Epstein. The prosecutor's office in Paris said Brunel was found hanged in his cell early Saturday morning. The office added that an investigation has been opened. Epstein died in jail in 2019 in what was ruled to be suicide. He had been awaiting trial on sexual abuse charges. And coming up, healing from eating disorders. Advice from a master life coach on helping someone you know to recover and what she says is the key to staying free. Find out more after this short break. we don't talk much about and that's part of the problem. Eating disorders affect people of every age, race, gender and size. About 9% of people worldwide and nearly 30 million Americans. It wreaks havoc on people's physical and psychological health and it can also be life-threatening. A slew of studies show a sharp increase in eating disorders during the pandemic and more people are being hospitalized for it too. But there are those who've suffered with the condition, recovered, and now live to tell their story of hope. I recently sat down with Master Life Coach Sue Bowles. And today, as National Eating Disorders Awareness Week begins, we share that conversation with you. Thanks for joining us, Sue. You've lived through a lot in your life, including at one time living with an eating disorder. And now you help others to find their way. 
So what was the turning point for you? Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. I think the turning point for me was after I lost a friend in 2005, and three years later, I was grieving her as if it was yesterday. And because of that, and not knowing how yet to deal with my emotions, I saw my eating disorder behavior starting to come back again. And I knew at that point in time, if I didn't do something and commit to a permanent change and whatever that took, then I was going to continue to live in that cycle. And I, I just wasn't willing to do that anymore. Eating disorders are shrouded in secrecy. There's, there's a lot that goes behind an eating disorder. So to simply ask someone I trusted and let them know, hey, I'm starting to see this struggle again and allow him to speak into my life. In this case, it was my pastor. Allow him to speak into my life and he helped connect me with someone. It do, never starts unless you take that first step. And that's oftentimes the scariest. And, and that takes a lot of bravery. Because eating disorders are so multifaceted, you need a multifaceted approach. It includes a dietitian. It includes a counselor. It, inc it might include a psychiatrist. You cannot heal from an eating disorder or any other addiction on your own. You have to allow other people into your life to help you. So for someone, for example, who might know somebody who has an eating disorder, how can they help? First of all, to, in order to speak into somebody's life, you have to be the right person. Not everyone is going to receive hard news and hard, hard truths from everyone. So you have to know that relationship. But when you are addressing your concerns with someone, it's, it's best to focus on the behavior. I am concerned when I see this. Not talking about numbers, not talking about anything else, but simply focusing on observable behavior. And then being able to, to either give them some resources or walk with them to that resource. So to help somebody else, you need to be involved in their lives. You need to be able to speak boldly into their life when you know that you're the one they're going to listen to. The pandemic has hit so many aspects of communication, of, you know, that's the biggest thing is communication. We're used to communicating through a text. And the more we can do to get out and force ourselves to be uncomfortable, the art of communication will start coming back to us. All of us want to know we are loved. And when we find those people who will show that to us and not just tell it to us, that's when we know we found where we belong. If you or someone you know is affected by an eating disorder, there are many ways to reach out. There are life coaches like Sue Bowles and other professionals, as she mentioned. And there's the National Eating Disorders Association, which can be found at nationaleatingdisorders.org. Sue Bowles can be reached at suebowles.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.